Justice, they say, is blind. At least we like to think it is. We like to think when Eric and Lyle Menendez stepped into the courtroom, they faced the righteous and impartial judgment of their peers. We like to think that a trial will tell us the whole story, make what's right and what's wrong as clear as night and day. But in reality, most crimes are like a plane crash. The only way to understand them is to look into the black box and hope what's inside that box will explain the senseless, bloody mess at our feet. To fix it, we have to understand how and why it happened. But Parasite? That's a black box we can't open. We can't look into the minds of Eric or Lyle to see their memories of abuse or hear a distinct moment they decided to murder for money. We can't know for sure whether the killing of Jose and Kitty Menendez was justified. The best we can do is present what we do know to a jury and hope they can look at the wreckage and put the pieces back together. I'm your host, Vinnie Politan, and this is Murder and the Menendez Brothers, a Court TV mystery. I'm a former prosecutor and journalist and now lead anchor for Court TV. Today, episode six, The Black Box. In the Menendez trial, the juries were never seen on TV, but figuratively speaking, all eyes were on them. One of California's most notorious crime stories was heading into its final phase. They have admitted killing their parents. Now two juries will decide whether their parents drove them to it. After five months, both juries were beginning deliberations. It was 1994. The Menendez trial was off the air as jurors got down to business. Behind closed doors, drama was brewing. Female jurors would later tell the New York Times that they found deliberations to be hostile, sexist, and insulting. Tracy Miller, one of the jurors, said the men would shout over the women when they tried to speak. We couldn't reach any jurors on Lyle's jury, but Hazel Thornton told us even choosing a foreman for Eric's jury was a challenge. A foreman speaks on behalf of the jury and mediates the deliberations. The women knew that there was no way that the men were going to choose a woman. (laughs) We had just gotten that impression. So they came to a compromise. We elected what I call the least offensive man, the one that seemed like he might be the most open-minded. Once the foreman was selected, the first thing they did was take a vote on whether Eric was guilty of murder or manslaughter. Remember, there was no option to acquit him. This vote would tell the jurors how aligned or divided they were. A lot of times it's done anonymously to avoid bias. The first mistake we made was to take a show of hands because that made it obvious right away that we were divided down gender lines. Six men wanted to vote for murder and six women did not. The gender divide made it more likely for jury members to align themselves with the people on the same page as them. Humans like to reinforce what we already believe. The only way to reach consensus would be to get the men to agree with the women or vice versa. Deliberations was a true battle of the sexes. According to Thornton, many of the women were swayed by the expert witnesses that the defense had brought to the stand. And the gender split wasn't just about whether or not the abuse was a fabricated defense. It was also about whether or not the Menendez brothers killed out of fear instead of premeditation. The men on Eric's jury weren't even convinced that the brothers acted in self-defense. 
The women thought the abuse explained the murders. Thornton said jurors would negotiate with one another, try to change each other's mind. There was a bargaining phase where one juror would say, well, if I, if I come up on, you know, this one count to second-degree murder, would you be willing to come down to this other, you know, count to voluntary manslaughter? There were many counts and many levels of possible verdict per count. So there was a lot of discussion to be had, but not much budging. Thornton said the men just could not believe a father would molest his sons. They couldn't imagine it. So the men were voting for murder and the women were voting for manslaughter because they did give the brothers reasonable doubt based on the defense that was presented. Two others from Eric's jury spoke to Court TV after the trial was over. You have these two bodies here. Then you go back and show that people bought guns. You show that they made, made up alibis and you show that they carried out their plan. And you got them on tape talking about doing all of this. Now, what, what other facts can you go get? I mean, you could speculate, but what other facts could you go get? I couldn't imagine the idea of keeping them in jail for the rest of their lives or putting them to death. There wasn't enough evidence for me. After Eric's jury deliberated for several weeks, their foreman requested more information in the hopes that they could reach consensus. But of all things, they wanted clarification on Eric's sexuality. The first was a request for, quote, reread of all testimony about or allusions to Eric's homosexuality, end quote. And that will be the first uh, material that will be read back to the jury. According to Thornton, the number one topic of discussion was whether or not Eric was gay. And if you're wondering, well, what would that have to do with it even? That would be a really good question. And if you wonder, well, what's the evidence? Well, there was none. Thornton didn't think it was relevant. Neither did the women on the jury. But the men thought it was important to consider. If Eric was gay, it could explain his conflicted relationship with his father more than the abuse did. The bottom line was that the men didn't buy the abuse defense, so they thought Eric deserved the death penalty. But the women did side with the defense and felt manslaughter was fitting. Most of the men on one side, all of the women on the other, each searching for the clear and just decision, piercing through the rubble of the crash, looking for clues. Eric's jury deliberated for 19 days. Then Judge Weisberg got a note from the jury. Quote, we are deadlocked. Positions have essentially not changed after three weeks of discussion and debate. I see no hope for reaching agreement on any of the counts, end quote. For an hour and a half, the judge provided Eric's jury with additional information. The court reporter read back from the transcripts. Then they broke for further deliberations and came back with another note. We remain deadlocked. Since our last report to you, nobody would budge. If anything, we have become more entrenched in our positions. A poll taken this morning shows that the jury believes there is no reasonable probability of our reaching a verdict or verdicts without violence to our individual judgments. They had become even more entrenched. This was the end, and news spread quickly. There's been a major development tonight at the trial of one of the two Menendez brothers charged with murdering their wealthy parents. The jurors had deadlocked. It was a hung jury. They are hung on the most serious charge of first-degree murder and lesser charges against him. The district attorney has said Eric Menendez will be tried again. 
Five of Eric's jurors, all men, voted for first-degree murder. They wanted him to face the death penalty. The remaining seven were for manslaughter and life in prison. It's hard to imagine the level of frustration these jurors must have felt. They'd spent half a year listening, and when they could finally talk, they couldn't reach a decision. Both sides had looked into Eric's eyes and saw something different. Was he lying, or was he telling the truth? Eric Menendez jurors later told Court TV, I felt like, in a way, it had been a big waste of time. With the evidence that we had, we should have came up with a conviction. The brothers could now face different fates. It was possible Eric would get another trial and Lyle would be convicted. Lyle's jury still hadn't decided. Meantime, older brother Lyle's jury today asked the judge questions about legal terms separating murder from manslaughter, and they continue deliberating. The next Monday morning, Lyle's jurors were supposed to report to the Van Nuys courthouse just like they had been for weeks. But while they were still asleep, Northridge struck. The Menendez trial is literally a matter of life and death, but it has what no fictional drama would ever show us, the delays and confusion of real life. One of California's most notorious earthquakes shook LA. 125,000 residents were displaced. This is a magnitude 6.6 earthquake. It was centered in the northern San Fernando Valley area. They're still trying to ascertain the exact epicenter. The very latest Los Angeles mayor, Dick Reardon, has just said that he has signed a declaration of local emergency in Los Angeles. There is a massive fire that's underway here in San Fernando. A number of homes have already been destroyed. People are now evacuating. As you can see, the charred remains of some cars. Even the courthouse had been damaged. Ceiling tiles and marble slabs littered the building. The deliberations were delayed by several days. Los Angeles had been shaken, both literally and emotionally. People both inside and outside of the courtroom wondered how the disruption was going to affect the trial. Law professor Lori Levinson, who attended parts of the trial, thought jurors might return to the court with a new perspective. When something like an earthquake happens and you realize there are other things in real life that you have to deal with, I think that there's less time to pay attention to the theater of the courtroom. Jurors returned to the courthouse about a week later and discussed for another week. Deliberations took 25 days in all. At the time, this was the longest criminal jury deliberation in California history. And... The court did receive a note this morning from the jury. It states, uh, we regret to inform the court that we are unable to come to a unanimous decision on any of the three counts. Another hung jury. This time, Weisberg was determined to do all he could to convince them. What I want to do is ask now uh, of the foreman whether you feel... um, that any further um, instructions on the law or reading of testimony would be any of assistance in the jury continuing its deliberations with the idea that uh, the jury would have a reasonable probability of reaching a unanimous verdict. I really don't think so. I really don't. Does anybody else on the jury feel that uh, further reading of testimony or Further instructions on the law would uh, assist the jury in reaching a verdict in this case. The gap is too wide. The judge didn't stop there. He asked each and every juror whether they felt a verdict was possible. Starting with juror number one. 
No, I don't think so. Uh, juror number two. No. Number three. No. Number four. No. Number five. No. Number six. No. Number seven. No. Number eight. Number nine. No. Number ten. No. Number eleven. No. Number twelve. There was a tone of defeat in their voices. It was a judicial repeat of what happened two weeks ago, only this time it was the jury deciding the fate of older brother Lyle Menendez. I find that the jury is hopelessly deadlocked and uh, the court declares a mistrial. This jury was also split almost evenly by gender. Only one man sided with the women who wanted Lyle to get manslaughter. One of the jurors' wives later told the New York Times their lives had been turned upside down with this case. All we do is live, breathe, and eat Menendez, she said. There was no verdict. No verdict. Four years since the murders of Jose and Kitty Menendez, still no clear decision on the Menendez brothers. Five months of a grueling trial, weeks of deliberations, and Eric and Lyle would have to continue waiting in jail. Reporter and author Robert Rand remembers the public outrage. People were on talk radio in L.A. Uh, yelling, uh, you know, what's wrong with those jurors? How stupid are they? The brothers admitted they did it. Why couldn't they convict them? But the jurors who sat in that trial every day for six months and heard the family history uh, had a lot of information. And in the end, the defense had done the seemingly impossible. They'd convinced some jurors that these brothers had reason to fear their parents. Lori Levinson remembers the public being surprised that some jurors felt abuse was a reasonable defense. That in fact the jurors were sympathetic to the defense argument that somehow they were acting in self-defense or imperfect self-defense in reaction to what their parents did. And therefore they did not have a unanimous jury. The hung juries had not been a win for either side. But for the defense, avoiding a guilty verdict was a kind of win. Anything that keeps your client from getting convicted and sentenced, including a hung jury, can be seen as a win, but it was only a temporary win. Gil Garcetti was LA County's district attorney at the time. He faced criticism for the amount of tax dollars spent on high profile cases like this one. This office is going to try this case again as a first degree murder case because that's what it is. That retrial will cost the taxpayers a bundle. The daily judicial tab for a murder trial is $10,000, bringing the cost of this trial to more than $1 million. And the next trial would cost even more. After the hung jury, Leslie Abramson held a press conference. Okay. This is unfortunately now a very expensive learning experience, okay? As far as the public perceptions of Eric, I it's, it's hard for me to know what they are right now. The mail that I get is entirely favorable. The 3,000 letters that Eric has received are entirely supportive. They're from people who are very empathic, either similar also abuse victims or just loving people who understand what he went through. Abramson committed to representing Eric again. Whether Eric Menendez, whether Eric Menendez can in fact <laughs> afford you for a second time around, will you defend him the second time around? I will defend him the second time around uh, if I can. That's all I can tell you. But Bazanich was out. In a recent conversation with us, she said she never would have signed up for another round. I resigned before I could be asked. Um, and it was physically and emotionally totally draining. I had no secretarial help. I wasn't paid enough, and I was tired, and I was done. So there was no chance of me doing the second trial. 
A new trial date was set for about a year after the first one ended. But the impact of the first trial, the intrigue it created, could be felt during that gap year. The trial was carried nationwide by Court TV competing with the soap operas. Court TV described it as amazingly popular. Court TV anchor Terry Moran said strangers would come forward, come up to you on the streets and the airports and want to talk about Menendez. It's never happened to me. Robert Rand had attended every day of the trial and became a go-to source on the Menendez brothers. That never really stopped. People would watch the trial live on Court TV during the day, and then they would go online for a, a very primitive version of the internet in which there were bulletin boards, and people would debate the evidence until 3, 4, 5 in the morning. I didn't even know this was going on. After the first trial was over, a Miami woman who moderated one of these bulletin boards invited Rand to her home to answer questions fans posted. People were hungry for a verdict, even when the trial was no longer on air. And she said, uh, there are 3,000 people waiting on the bulletin board that want to ask you questions. And that blew me away because we really didn't have much of an idea of what the Internet was. And um, the, the idea that 3,000 people were on a bulletin board in the primitive 1993 Internet was fascinating. The public wanted a finale to the TV series they'd watched. They would get one eventually. But first, another case you might have heard of would complicate matters. Double murder trial of O.J. Simpson. There was more than enough proof today how highly charged the case is. An NFL running back named O.J. Simpson was accused of killing his ex-wife and her friend. The O.J. trial took center stage on court TV while the Menendez case was left in limbo. That trial, of course, ended in Simpson's acquittal the verdict inflamed racial tensions, but O.J.'s acquittal might also have spurred jurors to want to convict the Menendez brothers to finally get a sense of justice. At least that was the provocative notion that law professor Robert Pugsley suggested before the second trial. He told the Chicago Tribune that the Menendez brothers could be unwitting scapegoats for O.J. Many years later, Eric Menendez would tell A&E he thought O.J.'s acquittal did have a negative impact on their case. Only time would tell. Viewers who followed the first Menendez trial expected to follow the sequel too, but this time no one would be watching from their living room. The first thing the judge did was he kicked the camera out of the courtroom. In a surprise ruling, Weisberg announced that there would be no cameras allowed in the courtroom. He said it would protect the rights of the parties, the dignity of the court, and assure the orderly conduct of the proceedings. Between the lines, it sounded like he wanted to prevent another media circus. Lori Levinson thought Judge Weisberg wanted to take command of the courtroom. I think that there were times throughout the case that he felt that he was losing control, whether to the media or how the defense lawyer was playing to the media. And by the time of the second trial, he really just wanted to flex his judicial muscles to say, I'm the one running this show. Weisberg never did fully explain why he kicked cameras out. But it was known that the likes of California's Governor Pete Wilson had called for a ban on cameras in the courtroom. The second Menendez trial was a far less crowded affair. Really, 80% uh, of the uh, reporters who uh, were covering the first trial went away. And so the second Menendez trial was covered uh, in an old school style. There were sketch artists, uh, there were still photographers allowed, but no, no video camera. And this time around, there would be one single jury. And all the attorneys, other than Leslie Abramson, were new to the case. And the most important difference? The second trial did reach a verdict.
The state of California desperately needed a win. They hadn't lost Menendez the first time around, but they hadn't won either. O.J. had been acquitted about a week before the second Menendez trial began. The prosecution now knew there was no way to win if the defense went on and on about abuse. So they tried to kneecap that line of argument. Here's Prosecutor David Kahn at a press conference before the second trial. One thing that we have asked the judge to do is to limit the so-called abuse excuse, to limit evidence that has nothing to do with this case, limit evidence going back years and years because the defendants themselves say that they did not kill their parents because they were abused. What they said was that they killed their parents because they were in fear of their parents. The abuse excuse is pretty much what it sounds like. It's a pejorative to describe the legal defense that abuse can justify a crime. Judge Weisberg sided with the prosecution and limited Abramson from relying on that legal defense. He had decided it was not relevant to the murder of Jose and Kitty Menendez. That was a major upset for the defense. Abramson saw it as a miscarriage of justice. For one thing, the judge is already making uh, indications he's going to severely limit the defense. He's going to limit our right to put on the facts, which is quite extraordinary. And we think we have a real problem with getting a, a fair and unbiased jury. So, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot more than that to make you think you have serious problems in the Justice Department. Abramson had a point. You can almost never prove abuse, but does that mean it shouldn't be raised as evidence in a case? Isn't that the point of a jury? To decide right from wrong, truth from lies. But prosecutor David Kahn wanted to avoid speculation at all costs. He stuck to hard evidence. He didn't rely on problematic witnesses like Dr. Ozeal. He even brought in a computer-generated recreation of the murders. And get this, the prosecution was allowed to begin their case with the confession tape. There was no legitimate reason to keep it from the jury now. It had already been played on national television. Meanwhile, the defense tried yet again to demonstrate that the brothers had killed out of fear. But because the abuse defense was limited, their witnesses were too. They couldn't call Menendez relatives who could attest to the sexual abuse. They couldn't bring forward experts to wow the jury. Even Lyle couldn't testify. Why? There was some new damning evidence. Prosecutors had allegedly gotten a hold of tape recordings and letters that indicated Lyle had convinced some of his friends to lie on the stand for him. Defense attorneys knew any shred of credibility Lyle had would be destroyed if prosecutors cross-examined him. It wasn't worth Lyle taking the stand. Since Lyle didn't testify, the prosecution didn't present the evidence. They had scared Lyle away without even raising the issue. This trial took even longer than the first one. Deliberations began after five long months. But this jury didn't need much time. Four days behind closed doors, and they had a verdict. Tonight, the place of murder, justice, and outrage in America. And we'll begin in California, where this time the stories of abuse, incest, and psychological terror didn't work. This jury went beyond the tearful testimony of the brothers. More than six years after the shotgun killings, after all the investigating, the legal delays, the distractions, and the surprises, both brothers were found guilty of first-degree murder. Lyle and Eric Menendez seemed emotionless as the eight-man, four-woman jury delivered its verdict. It was the most serious of all homicide charges. The prosecution was strongly advocating death 
but Leslie Abramson fought hard to save her clients from execution. This is just an attempt, a last-ditch attempt, by the prosecution to inflict even greater punishment on them than what the law prescribes, and I see it as exceedingly cruel and heartless. I don't hear them making statements like that about serial killers, about baby rapists, but because these are highly notorious defendants, thanks to y'all, they think it's a, it's a free-for-all for inhumanity. The jury decided Eric and Lyle would spend the rest of their lives in prison. They wouldn't receive the death penalty as David Kahn had hoped. We felt that death was an appropriate uh, um, verdict in this case. However, you really can't quarrel with the jury when they choose life instead of death. Some jurors spoke to the press after the trial was over. There's no way we could put them to death. Even though that horrible crime happened and what they did was horrible, there was other things, there were good things about them that warrant their life and them living. We felt the parents were very controlling, um, demanding that they didn't have a normal-type childhood. Um, we did have sympathy for them in that respect. It's obvious that they had situations going on in that family that were out of the norm. And I think there were um, exaggerations to, to an extent, but at the same time, there were some things that just don't happen in normal families. This time, the jury presented a united front. They mulled over the lives Eric and Lyle had lived. They validated their abuse, and yet they still felt murder is murder. Parricide isn't justified by abuse. The Menendez brothers went on Barbara Walters before they were formally sentenced. Tonight, for the very first time out of court, you will hear their story. The brothers sat side by side in handcuffs and dark blue prison uniforms. Eric wore wire-rimmed glasses. Both had soft expressions on their faces. This was the first time national audiences would see them outside of the courtroom. They spoke slowly and intentionally with emotion. I was terrified that, that they would give either one of us uh, death, and that's, that's scary. It was a humanizing interview. Some media outlets suggested that was the purpose. It was one last attempt at sympathy before the judge decided whether the brothers would get to be in the same prison. Some people might say, why should we put them together? I mean, look what they did. They should be punished as much as possible. Let's separate them. What do you say to that? What we did, it was awful. Um, and I wish I could go back. We will spend the rest of our life in prison. But if we're not put in the same prison, uh, there's a good probability I will never see him again. And, and that, uh, that I, some things that you cannot take and there's some things that you can endure uh, with everything taken away, would be the last, you know, it's the last thing you can take. And that last thing did get taken away. Eric and Lyle ended up in separate prisons. They had been each other's confidants, and now they were truly alone. As the years passed in prison, Eric and Lyle Menendez couldn't talk on the phone. According to Rand, they wrote each other letters. They even played chess by sending moves through the mail. The brothers have tried to make their lives resemble something normal. They still talk to their aunts and cousins on the phone, and occasionally, Marta Cano will visit her nephews in prison. Eric and Lyle both got married to pen pals they met during the trial, 
and they've maintained their relationships over the decades despite the challenges. In the 30 years since the murders of Jose and Kitty Menendez, Eric and Lyle have appealed their conviction all the way to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. In 2005, their last chance at a new trial was rejected. According to Robert Rand, who stays in close contact with Lyle, the brothers have come to terms with spending the rest of their lives in prison. But the legal defense that abuse could justify murder has become more and more common in a court of law. The role of psychological factors in determining and informing human behaviors are more deeply understood. And in the last three years since the Me Too movement began, conversations about sexual abuse have taken the global stage. It took three juries to sentence Eric and Lyle Menendez. If they had another jury today, maybe things would go differently. We asked the experts we've consulted throughout this podcast what they thought. I think the consequence of all the hullabaloo over sexual abuse in the 1990s is that today we are more open-minded. That's Dr. Susan Clancy, an expert on childhood sexual abuse. And we more understanding that it occurs and we're more likely to take the side of the victims and believe them. We've seen a sea change in people believing uh, these stories and because we believe them, other people are stepping forward and finally admitting it. Here's Hazel Thornton, the juror. Things have just changed. People understand more about the psychology of abuse and they've come to believe people who claim abuse. Robert Rand. I think it would be a completely different trial because society has evolved in 25 years. And uh, I think people are more willing to accept uh, that this abuse really does go on in families. We can never really know because the case of the Menendez brothers wasn't only about sexual abuse. It's that black box I mentioned earlier. We can only piece together a story from what we know. But their trial did ask whether or not murdering one's abuser can be justified. And it raised questions about how our legal system can possibly wade in such murky waters. Here's Levinson again. A lot of this came down to just the facts of this case and whether whatever was happening in that house really was what led to the shootings. It may be that both things are true. It may have been that there was sexual abuse in the house, but it also may be true that at the time that the boys shotgunned their parents, that's not why they did it. What she's saying here is profound. Maybe the brothers really were abused and do deserve our sympathy. But even then, their abuse could have nothing to do with their horrible crime. In the end, it all comes down to what you believe. After all that you've heard about Eric and Lyle's gruesome shotgunning, Jose's domineering character, Kitty's negligence, the family who stuck beside the brothers, and a taped confession, do you think the Menendez brothers' crime was justified? Do you? This case had a lasting impact on America. But for the people who actually were a part of it, it's become a never-ending story. After the brothers were convicted, Judalon Smith became a travel consultant. But that horrible period in her life is still a touchy subject. She declined to talk about her involvement in the trial. So did Leslie Abramson, who gained national fame after defending Eric and Lyle Menendez. She worked on capital punishment cases until she retired. Prosecutor Pamela Bazanich left the DA's office after the first Menendez trial. She famously said she'd rather eat ground glass for a year 
then try the case again. To this day, she maintains that the defense fabricated the sexual abuse. Dr. Jerome Ozeal's license to practice psychology was eventually revoked. According to Bustle magazine, he hosts relationship, marriage, and sex seminars for women in Oregon. We got a hold of Lyle Menendez through Robert Rand, but he declined to comment. We couldn't reach Eric. For years, Lyle was imprisoned in Northern California where he ran a support group for inmates who had experienced sexual abuse. Eric was in a San Diego prison. They were apart for decades. Two years ago, they were reunited at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. Both are serving life sentences with no possibility for parole. According to Rand, supporters of the brothers remain hopeful that new evidence could come to light and give Eric and Lyle another chance. Stranger things have happened. I'm your host, Vinnie Politan, and this has been Murder and the Menendez Brothers, a Court TV mystery. Thank you for listening. Murder in the Menendez Brothers, a Court TV mystery, is hosted by Vinny Politan. It's produced by Janaki Mehta and Tana Robbins of Neon Hum Media. Our editor is Catherine St. Louis. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. The executive producer at Neon Hum Media is Jonathan Hirsch. For Kate's Network Original Productions, Sophia Kelly is the senior vice president and Sean Cameron is the senior director. Production assistance is provided by Kate Mishkin and Haley Fager. Special thanks to Natalie Wren. You can see Court TV's complete coverage of the first Menendez trial in the Trials on Demand section on our website, courttv.com.